Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 305 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mercurio D. Rivera. He's the author of more than 20 science fiction stories, which have appeared in magazines such as Asimov's and Inner Zone, in anthologies such as Solaris Rising 2 and Year's Best SF-17, and on podcasts such as Escape Pod and Starship Sofa. He's also a member of the Manhattan writing group Altered Fluid, which also includes previous guests such as Matthew Kressel, Rajan Khanna, and Sam J. Miller. And I just want to note that today's guest is named Mercurio David Rivera, and he goes by David, so that's why you'll hear me refer to him that way during this interview. And we'll be speaking with him today about his short story collection Across the Event Horizon from Newcon Press. And now here's our interview with Mercurio D. Rivera. All right, so we're here with Mercurio D. Rivera. Welcome to the show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, tell us about the writing class that you took with Terry Bisson. Boy, you know, um, I was taking a break from work at the time, and uh, one thing that I always wanted to try my hand at was writing science fiction. This was back in 2000 and one, 2002 or so. And uh, I, I took a course at the New School on writing science fiction. And Terry Bisson was one of the instructors, and I was very familiar with Terry's work. And uh, he was the instructor and had a phenomenal time uh, in the class, learned a lot from him, so much so that I wound up uh, repeating the class uh, just to have that same experience again. And uh, wound up going back a third time, only this time... Um, Terry was no longer teaching the course. It was uh, uh, Alice Turner, the editor of Playboy, was the instructor at the time. Uh, and Alice helped me learn the basics of writing, point of view, and uh, just the, the basic elements of storytelling that, that helped me become a writer, I think. So I'm very grateful to both Terry and to Al the late Alice Turner. Yeah, I mean, I love uh, Terry Bisson's stories. His story, They're Made Out of Meat, is one of my favorites. Oh, Yeah. It's also, I think, I, th I think that might have been nominated for the Yugo uh, and uh, hold the record as the shortest story <laughs> ever nominated for Yugo. But uh, Terry has a, has a very unique approach to putting a story together, almost a, a mechanical approach. So he had his students give him a pitch and then submit the beginning of the story, the middle, and then the ending. And so I, I kind of appreciated that mechanical approach, and uh, it's something that I still use to this day. Now, when you walked into that class for the first time, had you written any science fiction at that point? Not a word. Wow. Not a word. Not <laughs> a word. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of science fiction, but I, and I was, but the, truthfully, I hadn't written um, fiction at all. Uh, but it's something that I always wanted to do. So what kind of stuff had you read that made you want to write science fiction yourself? Well, um, you know, I loved, I loved David Brin's works. I loved Orson Scott Card's works. Um, all the classics, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. And um, I always remember reading Dune for the first time. Uh, I picked it up out of a library. I must have been 14 years old, 13 or 14. And uh, I read it and I was like, oh, my God, this is an amazing book. People should be reading this. <laughs> I, hadn't even, I didn't realize it was, it was such a well-known work. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Now, so when you mentioned taking a class with uh, Alice Turner, I was talking to Matt Kressel recently, and he mentioned he took a class with Alice Turner. Was that the same class? Is that how you met him? No, I mean, I think it was it was different semesters, different years. He took it uh, before I did, actually. Uh -huh. So how did you yeah. meet him? Uh, well, uh, Alice suggested um, 
Well, I had talked to Alice about joining a, a writer's group. She'd mentioned that some of her former students had gone and formed a, a writer's group. And so I, I, I told her that I was interested. So she referred me to them. I sent an email to the group. Didn't hear back for many, many months, six months of silence. So I tried again. <laughs> and then I was welcomed to come attend a meeting. And the next thing I knew, I had joined uh, this writer's group, which uh, is called Altered Fluid. And that's where Matt was. And that's where. Paul Berger and Chris Dykeman and all people that are still members. This is back in 2004 that I joined the group. And here we are. Gosh, I can't believe it's 14 years later. And, um, you know, we're all still part of the same writers group. And it's Did amazing seeing, seeing, it's amazing seeing how those careers progress, by the way. When I joined the group, there was no, nobody had published anything. And, uh, now it's, nowadays it's, it's amazing what people have accomplished. Did you ever find out what happened to your first email? Did they just never get it? or? Uh, <laughs> this is a really good question. Um, I think that what happened was Paul had forwarded it to the – I contacted Paul Berger. Uh, he was the contact person for the group, and he forwarded it to the group, and they had kind of agreed to follow up with me, and then things fell through the cracks. Well, it's good that you you got hooked up with them finally. So it says in, the, in your bio that you um, did a live on-air critique. Uh, on Hour of the Wolf. Could you tell us about that? Sure. That was really frightening. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jim Freund had asked us to do a live critiquing session on his radio show, Hour of the Wolf. And um, I, you know, a few of us volunteered. We did a, a drawing to see which of us would be the fortunate or unfortunate one, depending on your point of view, to be critiqued. And I won. So um, I wrote a story and... Uh, it was called The Fifth Daniel, and we went on the show, and uh, I read the story out loud over the air, and then we treated it as if though it was a regular session of our writer's group after that. Normally in our writer's group, we don't read the stories, but in this case, for the radio show, we did. And then we did our usual uh, bit, which is we went around the room, everybody took three or four minutes to give their critiques, and then afterwards we had an open discussion. And all of this took place on live on the radio. And then we took questions from callers, which was also bizarre. We had some really strange callers. Stra um, strange how? Well, somebody called up and said, I, I like the story, but it didn't have trolls in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that person was a troll. <laughs> so, uh, some, some very, you know, weird, weird calls like that. Uh, but it was really interesting, you know, going through that whole experience. And then the story later on, I, I took the critiques, I revised the story, I turned it into the fifth Z, and later on went to publish that story. Yeah, and it's in the collection, so uh, people can check yeah. it check it out there. So were the people, uh, were they giving you friendlier critiques since you were on the air and it was public, or were they just as brutal as usual? Just as brutal as usual. I think that they the people wanted to give a, a real, um, a realistic look at how the group operates. The group is never really uh, cruel. You always want to give constructive criticism. So you start off with what's working in the story, and then what's not working in the story, how you would improve it, and then you usually end on a good note. That's just the, the form that the critiques always take. It's, a, it's almost a formula. Um, so it's never, and you never critique just for the sake of sounding smart or, or you know, just being a jerk. You, the objective is to make the story better. So since everybody has that point of view, I, I really, you always should walk away feeling inspired. If, you, if you're not inspired, then the work, the, the group is not working. 
So uh, I felt inspired after the radio show, just like I do after all of our meetings. Mm. Well, so this episode is not going to involve any live on-air critiquing, in case you were worried <laughs> about that. So, <laughs> Okay. Um, and so why did you change the title from the fifth Daniel to the fifth G? Um, I just, I wanted to give it a more, you know, an international flair. It was pointed out to me during the critiquing session that it was very, uh, United States centric and it's dealing with a global threat of an alien, an alien stock that's literally cutting the earth in half. It's like a, like a, a toothpick going through the heart of an olive. And, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a worldwide, um, catastrophe. And yet the story was very U.S. centric. So I thought, you know, let, that's a really good point. Let me, um, pick a different country. So instead of an army of, by the way, it's an army of clones that are sent on a final assault against this alien stock. And, uh, so I thought I'd make it in a, a Chinese uh, group of clones just to, to make it more of a worldwide threat. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about getting back to Terry Bisson for a second. In the introduction to this book, he says about you, he says, there are many literary pleasures in his work, nuances of character, precision of plot, prose that skitters and shines, humor and horror galore, but they are all subordinate to the central agenda of classic science fiction, the presentation of weird, wonderful, and thought-provoking ideas. And I was just wondering, do you agree with that? What do you think about that? Uh, that quote? Well, I, I, you know, I, I paid him a lot of money to write that. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that's very generous of him. Um, and uh, you know, I do agree that when I write science fiction stories, I, the, the focus always is from some central, some central weird idea. And then from there, that's what, I always start a story with that in mind and then build around that central idea, uh, characters. So, um, that's the starting point. And, um, so I, I agree with Terry's comment that, um, uh, weird and wonderful is the way to go. Hmm. I mean, do you feel, I feel like there's a lot of sort of, peer pressure or something these days not to say i write science fiction about ideas it feels like everyone you know do you feel like peer pressure that everyone's like oh david you should write say that you write genre bending stuff that's what all the cool kids are doing or something yeah that, that is the trend and i do resent that <laughs> <laughs> I, I resent it because the the implication is that if you're writing um straightforward science fiction that you're not really um doing anything cutting edge you're not running anything socially significant. And, you know, the best science fiction is both of those things. And uh, it doesn't have to be genre bending. It doesn't have to transcend the boundaries of the genre, as is common to say these days. I think if you just write a traditional science fiction story, you know, by its very nature, you, if, if it's executed properly, it can, have strong, it can have strong literary merit. It can make social commentary. Um, it can do all those things. So, yeah, I mean, I realize that's the cool thing to say. Um, but I don't think it's accurate. Well, yeah, and I mean, I really like hard science fiction, sort of classical science fiction, particularly in short stories where you can have, you can just go through a whole book and just be bombarded by all these cool, thought-provoking ideas. And, you know, what happens is I read um, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Vandana Singh, and she had a short story collection, which was more hard science fiction. And I read it, and I was like, wow, this is great. And I, so I went looking for more, and that's how I, I sort of gave me the, th the thought to talk to you about your book. Um, but there's not a lot of books like this that are, you know, new single author hard science fiction short stories. And I wish there were more because I, I love this stuff. Yeah, me too. Me too. Let's let's put a call out there for more of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, because, and certainly from reading these stories, I mean, you seem to be, you know, to have kind of an interest in science. Some of these stories, they reference concepts like Bose-Einstein condensates and dark energy. Could you talk about how, just how, do you keep up with science or how do you, how do you keep up with science? I, I do. And, you know, I don't, I don't sit down and read scientific journals or anything like that, but I do watch the science channel <laughs> and I do watch, you know, documentaries about space. Um, so you know, I am familiar with some basic concepts and then sometimes just the, the story itself requires to do, requires you to do some research. Like in, um, one of the stories in the collection called Missionaries that you just mentioned. Um, I had a, a, a being that was made of light and I wanted to find a way to contain it. And I thought, is there any way to slow down light? So all I did, I did a Google search and, and I looked into it and realized that there's something called Bose Einstein condensates that can actually slow down light. Uh, almost freeze light in its place, which which is a really bizarre concept. Um, so I you stuck that in the story, but uh, but yeah, I do I do watch a lot of science shows. So uh, you know, I'm not necessarily an expert, but I can become an expert when it's necessary. Yeah, well, because if you're talking about classical science fiction, I mean, one of the things that I think science fiction should be doing is making you consider new things and look at familiar things in a new way. And it's really it really frustrates me a lot that so much TV and Hollywood science fiction especially doesn't do that. It's just, you know, they have laser guns and they have spaceships, but it doesn't really make you think about things in a different way. And I think one of the things I really like about these stories is that it does that. I mean, like an example that comes to mind for me is in your story Doubled. The premise is that sort of everybody in society is a twin and that's considered normal. And then to not be a twin is is sort of a weird minority and the the twin people think of the non-twin people as aberrant, and it's uh, it's just really interesting how you do that. Yeah, you know that's that's uh, all the stories in my collection. That probably is the most Twilight Zone type story I think in the in the collection. In that it's um, it's about the concept of individuality, and um, there is sort of a little twist ending at the end in Twilight Zone fashion. But um, yeah, I, I like that conceit of. Um, uh, defining, you know, redefining what's normal. If you think about the episode of Twilight Zone where everybody is deformed and there's a, a woman who is being operated on to make her, sorry, everybody, everybody in the world is deformed, but there's a, and there's a woman who's really beautiful and she's considered ugly because she's the only beautiful person on the world, in the world. Um, I always like that idea of turning things on its head in that way. Um, so that's what this story does. It takes the idea of, of being an individual and making that a, um, a crime in the society. Yeah, Eye of the Beholder, I think, is that Twilight Zone episode? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, how did you get the idea to, to write this story about twins? Are you are you a twin, or do you know some twins, or where did that come from? <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's I, it's hard to say. I just, I wanted to come up with um, a society where things were different, and I just thought of twins. I don't, I can't think of where the, the where that idea came from, but, um, um, I just, I just like the idea of, uh, exploring individuality in that way. Um, I don't know any twins, strangely enough, but, um, but I've always been fascinated by twins and, <laughs> and <laughs> well, if there uh, are any twins listening, you should reach out to David and introduce, introduce yourself. So he, uh, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that's interesting to me most about twins, David, is I know that there's research done about twins that are separated at birth and that, uh. They go on to, to do, uh, they wind up in the same profession. That's always, I found that very bizarre because you wonder about, uh, you know, how much of our lives is predisposed by genetics and how much of it is 
is determined by the environment. So I've always found that fascinating when you split twins up and they wind up in the same profession. Hard to explain other than genetics, but it's hard to believe genetics plays a role in your um, professional choices. So very strange. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I yeah. mean, um, so yeah, obviously you're interested in, in twins and you're also, you seem to be really interested in aliens. It seems like there are a lot of stories <laughs> about aliens in this book. Would you say that you have a particular interest in aliens compared to other science fiction writers that you know? I think so. And the funny thing is somebody mentioned that to me at a, at a convention recently and they said, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how many stories of yours involve aliens. And I thought, really? I, I didn't think so. And it was only when he mentioned that comment that I sat down and looked at my work and realized, holy cow, he's right. There's, <laughs> it's probably 90% of the stories are, uh, involve uh, aliens of some sort or, or another. So yeah, I think I do have a, a particular interest in that. It is true. It's, it's traditional sci-fi, but you know, again, it's, it's, uh, something that I'm proud of. And I think we can, you know, you can do interesting things with them. I mean, are there examples as a science fiction reader of aliens that really captured your imagination? Boy, you know, I love Werner Vinge, his, um, his books. I love his depiction of aliens. And, and, um, one thing it taught me was that if you're telling a story from an alien point of view, at its heart, you have to have some sort of human characteristic that you can latch onto. Otherwise, you don't relate to what's going on. Um, you can have weird aliens that are, uh, you know, that nobody understands and that are bizarre, but you can't tell a story from that point of view. It's got to be, if you're doing a story like that with, with aliens that are, that you can't understand, then the point of view has to be from the human point of view. Um, but when you, once you get into that alien mindset, there's got to be something that the reader can latch onto. Maybe it's feelings of, you know, being uh, maternal feelings or, or, or uh, hunger or something that, as a reader, you know, you can latch on to. Are you thinking it's the, he has the, the, the telepathic dogs that sort of, they get more intelligent, the more of them are together. Is that what you're thinking of? That's one of them. Yes, absolutely brilliant. And yeah. I, I, that, that is it. And also I think in that same book, he has uh, sentient spiders as well that are phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's such a cool idea. Some of my, my favorite um, aliens, Larry Niven came up with a lot of my favorite aliens. So like the puppeteers in the known space stories and uh, the Modis in The Bone God's Eye. Those kind of stick out to me as some of my favorite aliens in science fiction. Those are favorites of mine as well. I love Larry Niven. Yeah. So um, so tell us about some of your aliens. You have um, you have these aliens that they hibernate half of their body at a time. Yeah, the, the, the cockaroons. They're uh, avian aliens. And the idea came from a trip I took to the Galapagos Islands where, um, I was being shown, uh, albatrosses nests. And, um, one of the things the guide told us is that albatrosses fly over the oceans for long periods of time, sometimes days, weeks at a time without landing. And that what they did during the, their travels is half their minds would go to sleep and the other half would guide itself through the air and it was a, a interesting biological mechanism and some i think there's some fish that do that as well but once i heard that i immediately researched the topic and um the cockaroons were then born <laughs> my alien uh, avian uh bird creatures who you know ha they have two different personality types um so yeah so that's um uh, uh that's where the idea came from for the cockaroons and um so the idea in that story is that they um they um uh, the cockaroons uh, produce this substance in their eggs 
that when consumed by human beings uh, creates uh, feelings of inspiration uh, and they invent things. So humans are on the hunt for these alien eggs. And the story is about, you know, exploitation and colonization. And, uh, and there's a, a little twist at the end, uh, which I, I really enjoyed. But um, that's where the idea came from. Yeah, well, I, I, and, I, and sort of the way I read it was it's almost like it's like the left brain, right brain thing. And so when you when they touch the ground, the two halves of their personalities are integrated. Um, yeah, that was a really interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, that's right. When it's flying, it's more more of an immature creature. And then once it lands, it becomes a, a different personality type. Yeah, so that's really cool. And then um, talk about these aliens. They communicate via scent and they have no concept of hearing. Sure. Um, I don't think they have names in the story. I call them the centers <laughs> when I talk about them. But um, this was in my story, um, uh, The Scent of Their Arrival. They're aliens that communicate simply by releasing a mist in the air and ideas are exchanged through uh, scent and this, rather than by sound. And um, they're on a very ge ge uh, geologically active world where it's uh, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it's easier to communicate through scent, through these mists, than through the use of sounds. And um, because it's uh, so noisy that you couldn't hear what anyone's saying. Right. That's the that's the concept. Yeah. It's it's, it's lots of earthquakes and it's always geologically active. So, um, yeah, they communicate by scent, and uh, the the story and they're trying to decipher a, a human communication, but they, there's no scent track. On the communication, so they're trying to make heads or tails out of this uh, human hologram that's telling them a, a story. So, um, yeah, those are my centers. And this story is really interesting because there's sort of two parallel stories going on. Where there's the centers, and then there's what's going on on the um, the communication, the human communication that they're trying to decode, um, which has a little bit of a sort of a horror. I mean. I, I Despite what we were saying about genre bending earlier, there's a little bit of genre bending going on in this story. It seems like I definitely went crazy in this one I, I, <laughs> because it's this it's in the it's, it's the it's the apocalypse. There's interdimensional vampires. There's first contact with aliens. There's the scenting communication. Um, I definitely put out all the stops for this one. And you're right, it is a combination of science fiction and horror because half the story is told from the point of view of these aliens. Who are engaging in first contact with a spaceship that's orbiting their world? They're trying to figure out what the aliens want, and then the second story is the story being told by the human holograms. And the story that's being told is really a, a, a horror story about an interdimensional rift that opens up and vampire, vampiric creatures that stream through and and swarm the earth. And um, and when I wrote the story, by the way, um, I submitted it to Interzone and. The uh, assistant editor at the time, Jetsy DeVries, came, came back to me with some comments. He was worried that I was calling, that I was referring to the creatures as vampires. He thought that there were too many, at the time, there were too many vampire stories that were being written. And, um, he suggested I just not refer to them as vampires and keep it strange. But although anybody reading the story will realize these are, <laughs> these are vampires. Um, so I, I, there's no word, the, the word vampire does not appear in the story, but, they're definitely vampiric creatures that are swarming through that interdimensional rift and and bringing the apocalypse to mankind. Well, and they have all these sort of classic vampire characteristics, like they can turn into mist and they require an invitation before they can come into your residence and stuff like that. But it's all sort of scientifically rationalized in a way, almost like um, I Am Legend or something. 
Yes, like the, exactly. The, the, the person telling us the story is trying to come up with scientific explanations for these supernatural, apparently supernatural properties that these creatures have. But it's really interesting to see. I mean, so they, uh, the humans try to create giant sun lamps all over the place and have, uh, robots that stick the vampires with wooden stakes and things. It's kind of interesting to see this, uh, advanced technology versus werewolves, uh, sorry, versus vampires thing play out. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't help it. I, <laughs> you know, I've often tried writing fantasy stories and I wind up turning them into science fiction stories. And in this case, I think I started writing a horror story and turned it into a science fiction story. <laughs> um, but uh yeah I, I like that i like i like giving a uh, giving it a scientific uh approach and having having the um the protagonist looking at it, at it from a scientific perspective yeah i mean and it's it works really well i mean just the ending of this when i when i sort of when it clicked where the story was going i was just kind of like oh man it just gave me made my skin crawl it's creepy oh cool thanks yeah um, okay, and so then the other alien, obviously, we have to talk about is uh, the Worgen. So tell us about the Worgen. Oh, uh, yes, the Worgen. <laughs> it's taken up so many years of my life. Um, the the Worgens are aliens who are biochemically addicted to humans in the sense that they are, really, they're smitten with human, humanity. And they, they call it love. They need to, you know, they, once they make first contact with humanity, they realize they want to be about around humans. They want to help humans. They want to just look at humans. And, um, and the catch is that humans find the organs viscerally repulsive. Um, you know, they're white, they're scaly, they stink of vinegar. And uh, humanity wants nothing to do with them. But on the other hand, they're offering all of this superior technology. So, so of course, we take the technology and, and create these, these partnership agreements where uh, you know, Worgens get to hang out with us and and um, stay ten feet behind us, but they can watch us and be with us. And in exchange, we get to use their technology and colonize the solar system and um, the cosmos. And um, I've written a number of stories in this universe because I just think that I love the ver I love the idea of the Worgens as a symbol for unrequited love. I mean, they, they love humanity so much, but humans want nothing to do with them. And I think that's something, it's a feeling that's universal to all of us. You know, we, I think it all, for all of us, sometime in our lives, you know, we maybe feel love and it's not reciprocated. So I think it's, it's just rife for storytelling. And um, I've written 11 stories now in the Worgen universe. And um, all of them explore different types of love, maternal love, romantic love, courtship. Even one of my stories explores the love of a human and their pet dog. <laughs> hmm. So um, I just think it's fodder for great stories. And, and even the relationship between humanity and the organs is one big, it's like a, rom a big romantic relationship. You get to see the courtship. They get together. They get married. They have some tiffs. They divorce. And then maybe they reconcile. Maybe they don't. I haven't figured out my ending yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, the whole thing tracks... It tracks a romantic arc of a romantic relationship over hundreds of years. So, um, the first story that I wrote, uh, is called Longing for Langalana and it appears in the collection. But, uh, I've also, as I mentioned, I put together 11 stories into a, um, into a novel, a mosaic novel called The Love War. And it's, it's sitting with a pub publisher right now. So I'm hoping to hear back, uh, with some good news, but, uh, we'll see. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I've read three of the stories, and I think that they're phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, I really oh, I, I hope that gets published. Yeah. Well, thank you. Do you remember at this point what the first sort of seed of this idea was, or? Um, you know, I, I think it's unrequited love. Feel that 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 particular feeling, because I because I always think that the most successful science fiction stories, despite all all that we've talked about about you know aliens and and science science fiction con- concepts, traditional science fiction concepts, I think that at the heart of successful science fi- of any story is there's got to be some emotion, and so I, whenever I start a story, I always think about the emotion that I want to convey to the reader, and in this case, I wanted to explore unrequited love. That was the seed. And then I thought, well, what if the aliens are really interested? In, and I first I thought, what if the humans were interested in the aliens? But I thought it was weirder because, you know, because we always, you know, any, any alien that we would encounter would be so far beyond us that I thought it would be much weirder if they're suddenly obsessed with us. So I took that route instead. Um, but that was the, um, that was the seed of it, just unrequited love. Well, I mean, there's a story in this collection called Naked Weekend, and it's about a couple who have sort of nano machines to regulate their emotions and keep their marriage stable and everything. And then they um, try going the weekend without it. And suddenly their whole relationship is called into question. And I was wondering if that was, and it, I think it was published before the, the any of the work and stories. So I was wondering if that was maybe any of the ideas from that fed into the work and stories, because it's sort of that same idea of what is love really and how much is it biochemical and what does that mean and so on. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I, I never I'd never made that connection before, but you're right. It was written before the Worgans. It was if so, it's it wasn't conscious, but I, I definitely in that I, in that particular story, the idea was um, I wanted to write about the fact that we live in such a highly medicated world these days. So many people are on antidepressants and other drugs that control their emotions. So I just wanted to take that idea to the extreme and create a society where literally every emotion is regulated. And, you know, you can only, you're only allowed to feel a certain amount of anger or a certain amount of, of any particular emotion. And, and, and people have wristlets that allow them to kind of control their emotions, but within regulatory bounds, they're not allowed to do certain things, feel certain things. And as you mentioned, this couple goes quote unquote naked for a weekend and feel their real emotions. And, um, uh, and I try to keep it a little bit ambiguous. <laughs> Actually, I thought the easy, the easy ending to the story would have been to say, hey, you know, this is all wrong and emotions are good. But um, I wanted to I wanted to make it a little bit uh, more ambiguous and point out, point out to the fact that a lot of times some of the worst things that happen in the world are due to negative emotions. Um, so I kept it a little bit ambiguous, but um, but uh, that was the idea. Hi, the, the fact that we're also medicated. <laughs> what would happen if we were really, truly medicated? you know completely well and yeah and i mean that's one of the things that i i want science fiction to do this is what greg egan calls burning the motherhood statement where you don't want every story to just be like oh this new technology sucks and no one should use it and the story is just like oh yeah this it's bad now we're going to go back to being real and natural and everything you know you want there to be a more nuanced complex relationship between humans and advanced technology Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like in that story, I, uh, I was definitely going for the ambiguity because, like I said, you should walk away thinking, well, this, it's not good to regulate all these emotions. But then there, at the ending, there's a little twist where you see the real world and what, you know, the results of, of naked emotions and where that takes us so that you're left questioning about, questioning yourself about 
maybe there should be some way to control our emotions to sort, at least to a certain extent. Um, but you know, but that's what makes us human on the other hand. So it's definitely ambiguous. Well, and I think there's an interesting conversation in, um, the longing for Langolano where the human tells this alien who's in love with him, you're not really in love with me. It's just this biochemical thing. And she says, well, human love, I've been reading up on it. It's just biochemical. It's just dopamine and things like that. Um, uh, I think I might have the quote, the, um, heightened neural activity in the ventral tegmental area. Um, and so, yeah. And, and so it, it is inter an interesting question. What is, what does it mean for love to be real? And if you take a drug that cancels out the biochemical feeling, is that the quote unquote real state or is the state you were in to begin with the quote unquote real state or does real ha really have any meaning in this context? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, after 11 stories in the universe, I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know the answer, right? But I think that it's, it's a fun question to explore, you know, what, what, it, what is real love? And is, is it all, is it, is it the chemicals that prompt love? Or is, as one of the characters says, is it love that prompts the chemical reaction? Um, so um, that's what I explore in, in the, in the Worgen stories, for sure. When you just think about, I mean, like, obviously, a parent is much more likely to love their child than some other random child who may have, you know, more attractive characteristics or, or whatever, you know. So is, the, is that then, are they, like, helpless before that or something, you know, but I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. to. Play. No, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I think the concept, I think, and one of the, one of my working stories is about uh, maternal love and it involves, um, a working who adopts, um, two children, two children, I'm sorry, a human woman that adopts two working children and their relationship and, uh, the feelings of maternal love, uh, and what they mean, what, the, what that means. So, um, definitely, uh, an area that I, I've enjoyed exploring. You mentioned too, I mean, another moment from the stories I read that I really found memorable is you mentioned the dog and the, the alien says, you know, we give you all this tech to the human says, we give you all this technology and we just praise you all the time and we just love you so much and you despise us and you just love this dog and it doesn't do anything really it just sort of sits around, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and that was really interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hard to explain, right? But, um, but it gets to defies explanation. <laughs> so have all, so you mentioned this, this novel, the, the mosaic novel has 11 stories in it. Yes, it has 11 stories, including a, um, a, a huge novella that as well, it's called free fall that's included in there as well. But uh, yeah, it's a total of 11 stories and I've, I went back and I reworked them so that there is a smooth arc. You know, you can read one story after the other and you can see that one follows the other and that, uh, the, the relationship between humanity and the organs, you know, it changes from the first story to the eleventh story. And how many of those have been published out of those eleven? Um, six have been published, and five are new. And are those? Are you planning to try to publish those five, or are they part, just part of the the bigger the, the, novel? The, I, I haven't tried to publish them yet because I think that the novel will be more sellable if it's got more original content in it. So um, I'm not looking to publish them yet. So we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully we can get the the book published. Yeah, you know, like I said, I mean, that, I I think that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I want to ask you about is I feel like a lot of these stories are pretty disturbing. Um, <laughs> I'm going to mention. Well, how about I'll start off with "Snatch Me Another." Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take these in sort of ascending order of disturbingness. Um, <laughs> but talk about "Snatch Me Another." Um, "Snatch Me Another" is one of those. Um, 
science fiction stories that has a central con a conceit of a technological innovation. It's a, a snatcher, it's called, a device that allows you to, it's, it's like a barrel-shaped device that allows you to literally stick your arm in, reach into another dimension, and pull something back. Now, you, you put a little homing um, uh, device in it, sort of like, um, let's say you take a pen, and you put the pen in the barrel, and then you, you, if you reach into the barrel, you can take up another version of that pen from another dimension. So in that way, um, humans start uh, snatching things that they need from other dimensions. And it um, starts off pretty... Um, uh, it starts off with some pretty minor things, like paper plates and inhalers and loose change. And, uh, and then slowly you realize, as you come to read the story, that as you've been reading it, you realize that the, the, the main characters in their story, their child, is not their real child. Their, real, their child is dead, and they've snatched a duplicate from another dimension, um, which is a very disturbing concept. Right, and then there's another story called Dear Annabelle's, which is set in the same world, right? Yeah, you know, and the, the funny thing is I wrote Dear Annabelle's first, um, although I published it later, but Dear Annabelle's is a series of Dear Abby letters. And all the letters are about the snatcher, you know, different problems that people have um, uh, with people coming over from other dimensions and using their bank accounts or wearing their clothes. And it's it's really banal stuff. And the advice is always, you know, take some intoxicants, <laughs> go get drunk. Really the world's worst advice. Um, uh, but it just gets weirder and weirder uh, as the story progresses. And really you see the world kind of breaking down as these inter interdimensional walls come down. And... Uh, the, the real trick of writing that story is that the real story is off screen. You're, you're reading these letters about these, like these banal problems. You know, I'm trying to plan my wedding and my duplicate, my, my, my aunt's doppelganger won't come to the wedding. You know, really banal <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but the real story is the, the story of the earth, the world, what's going on in the background of society. And it's between the letters, between the lines that you realize that things are really falling apart. So, um, that's I really enjoyed writing that one. It was, how did a, it was you a get the, challenge. How did you get the idea to write it in the advice column format? Um, you know, I'm, it's hard to say. I read a lot of Dear Abby letters when I was a kid, but um, I just I wanted to tell it in a in a non traditional format, and somehow the idea came to me. Uh, so, were you a fan of Dear Abby, or you just had nothing better to do? Or <laughs> um, I think it used to be a regular column in the tabloid newspapers in New York. So whenever you read a news, you know, back when there were solid <laughs> hard copy newspapers that people routinely read, you open it up and there's Dear Abby. So you just kind of, you know, read your horoscope, you read Dear Abby. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Because like you said, in the story, the person's giving terrible advice. Yeah. I mean, it gets, it gets worse and worse as the, as the, as the letters go on. So, and so, yeah. so I, I guess it, so then did you, I guess you wrote that story and then you, you thought, oh, I could make this 10 times worse or like, here's a way I could make it 10 times worse. Yeah, exactly. And, and once I'd finished it, I, I, um, I took one of the letters and I said, you know, this is really, this really, the, the, the letter, uh, involving the, the duplicate child that's taken from another universe. And I said, this is really a great idea. And then I, I turned it into, um, snatch me another. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that was pretty, pretty disturbing. And then we come to this, what's called Tu Sufrimiento Shall Protect Us. Yeah. <laughs> that one is, that one is probably, that one is horror. And, um, it's the most horrific story in the collection for sure. 
And uh, it's also the most political story in the collection because it's uh, the the seed f for that story was a debate I was having with a friend of mine about uh, Guantanamo Bay and the, the torture that was taking place at Guantanamo Bay at the time under the Bush administration. And uh, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, who um, was of the view that, well, you know, it's unfortunate that this is happening, but, you know, we have to do it. We have to do it to keep ourselves safe. There's no choice. And obviously I disagreed, but I thought, that's a really great idea for a story. What if uh, it's true, there is no choice. We have to torture somebody in order to keep ourselves safe. So in the story, it's a, um, it's just, it's magic. Um, the idea is you, you capture a terrorist or you capture somebody who is of the same ethnicity as a terrorist. You put them in your basement and you, using magic, you keep them alive and you torture them endlessly. And as long as you do that, uh, you believe you can keep, uh, everyone safe. So, um, yeah, that one, that one was disturbing to write for sure. Did anyone respond? Like, did, did you get any responses to the, to the torture stuff in the story? Um, what do you mean by responses? Like from readers? From, yeah, or from, uh, workshoppers or things like that? Um, some, some folks in the, in the writing group were very disturbed and didn't like the story because it was so graphic. Um, some of the reviews the story got were right on the nose. They got exactly what I was going for in terms of, even though, you know, there's no politics overtly mentioned in the story, they realized right away that it was about our, our policy of torture at the time. So that was interesting that people actually, you know, picked up on what I was going for. Uh, and there's a lot of Spanish in the story. Yeah, you know, I had, I'll confess, I had just read uh, Juno Diaz <laughs> well, right before I wrote this story, and he had used a lot of Spanglish in his, um, in his, his novel. The, the, um, the name escapes me right now. But, uh, the uh, Brief, the, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Thank you. Yes, that one. And, and I thought, you know, I've never seen this done in any sort of um, speculative works, this type of language. So I, I thought I'd give it a shot. Certainly, I, mean, I grew up in the Bronx. I'm Latino, so I've been around people that speak Spanglish. So I thought I'd incorporate it into the story. And so um, do you think you'll do any more of that? Um, maybe, maybe. I, I mean, I was really happy with that one. It was nominated for a World Fantasy Award. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I was quite pleased. But I, I haven't thought about going back, but um, maybe. Uh, okay, and so then uh, the the third story I have here on my list of disturbing stories is called "Sleeping with the Anemone." <laughs> yes, that one is that one is more satirical than the others. It's definitely a satire on space opera, and the idea is that there's a uh, I think there's a line in the story. There's one commonality, one one <laughs> one sh one trait that crosses the species divide between humans and aliens. And that's pornography. <laughs> so uh, the idea is that it's 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 somebody who's filming porn movies involving humans and aliens, and uh, basically it goes viral and uh, there's a whole underground market. And the story is uh, is about somebody who's filming one of these movies, um, but it's definitely tongue in cheek for sure. It's not <laughs> uh, it's not it's not horror. It's, it's supposed to make you um, uh, um, smile a little bit at, at how ridiculous it is. Well, but these aliens, they're not like Spock. These are like really non-human aliens. Yeah, yeah. They 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 look like anemone. So they look like anemones. So, uh, but one of the characters goes fishing for one. 
So that's what I mean by tongue in cheek. He literally puts a fishing rod in a in, under some ice and and fishes one up out of the ice. Yeah, but it gets really dark too. I mean, it's not not just a barrel of laughs. <laughs> yeah, it has some dark elements to it for sure. That was interesting though, because I you know I guess that's true that porn cuts <laughs> uh, cuts across inner species or something. I mean, like. I guess it depends on whether they're sexual or, um, you know, have uh, uplifted themselves out of biological bodies or anything like that. But, yeah, you don't think about aliens having porn so much. But I guess when you think about it, yeah, I mean, they probably would. <laughs> I Yeah, it's not something one normally thinks about. Just, this, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and so, so, again, did you get any – what kind of responses did that story get? Um, not, you know, not – I didn't get any strong responses to it, surprisingly. Um. Uh, I thought that the writers group, uh, thought that it was, uh, funny. Um, a few people were bothered by it, but didn't get, didn't get as strong a, a response as Tusu Fimiento did. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, just Pro- like. Probably because David, the, because all the, um, stuff is being done to aliens as opposed to, and Tusu Fimiento being done to a human being. Huh. I mean, could you talk about the the process of publishing this book of get of putting all the stories together and and making a book out of it? How did that come about? Sure, um, I had been solicited by uh, Ian Waits out of England for a an, an anthology he was putting together called Solaris Rising Two. He had published a successful anthology called Solaris Rising, and he um, asked me. He's familiar with my work from Interzone. So he asked me if I could contribute a story, and I had a story that was ready to go when he called, when he contacted me. So I sent it off to him. He liked it, uh, took it, and then a few weeks later, he said, "Hey, you know, I've read your work in Interzone. I like this story. Can you? Would you be interested in putting together a, a collection for my press, my small press, Newcon Press?" So I said, "Absolutely." So, um, you know, we sat down and and put together the collection. And so how did you decide what order to put the stories in? Well, I gave it a lot of thought. I mean, I think that the most – I thought about leading off with Longing for Langolana because I think it's the most emotional story in the collection. But I thought it was also very long. I wanted to start off with a story that would grab you and that would be shorter. So I thought that Dance of the Cockaroons was the ideal story length, and it, it was – um and it had like a little twist, had a twist ending that I thought would hook readers to, to see what the next story was about. So I decided to, to lead off with Dance of the Cockaroons. Then I went into Longing for Langalana. I figured once the reader is hooked, they'll read what I think is the strongest story. Um, and then, um, from then on, I took, uh, I went with Missionaries because I thought it was, you know, against strong sci-fi, faith and, faith and religion as the central concepts. And, um, Snatch Me Another and Dear Annabelle's kind of, uh, I was really proud of Snatch Me Another. And then, uh, Dear Annabelle's kind of seemed to follow right that, right after that one. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, I gave it some thought. It was like sometimes when you listen to an album growing up as a kid, you always think, gee, I would have let off the album with this other song because it's gonna, it's more likely to hook listeners. I, I definitely thought about that when putting together the collection. I wanted to make sure that the first few stories hooked the reader. Well, and then you end with uh, Answers from the Event Horizon, which has a nice sort of optimistic kind of uh, button on the whole collection. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I um, the, the concept in that one is what if you had a, a limited amount of time 
to use, to, sorry, to a limited amount of time to ask questions of, to an intergalactic uh, intelligence. You know, what would you ask? And um, I also had a, a word limit because it was being, I was submitting it to Nature Magazine. So, so there really was a limited window because I didn't, I had a limited number, limited number of words. Um, but I, I asked the questions that I would ask. You know, is, does God exist? You know, what is the meaning of life? You know, uh, all the big questions. And of course, I had to formulate answers <laughs> to those questions, which was not easy. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think it does, that story does present my point of view, and it is an optimistic point of view. Well, I mean, speaking of, of does God exist, I mean, you mentioned, too, the story of missionaries, where it's mm -hmm. a kind of future like Star Trek, where religion has just kind of, you know, uh, shriveled away. Um, do you think that that's kind of the future that we're headed for? Um, I think so. I think so. Um, uh you know, I, I wanted to explore the concept of faith in that story, but I didn't want to do like a religion bashing story. That was my worry. And the first few drafts of this, I thought kind of were leaning that way. And luckily the writer's group pointed that out to me. So I decided to try a whole different tack. I decided to make my protagonist, who you're relating to the most, to move her on a path towards faith and towards religion. And I thought that, that way... It wouldn't look like I was religion bashing because I really wasn't. I wanted to just explore how little difference there is between, you know, uh, when you talk about, you know, physics and you talk about religion, there's a lot of similarities when you talk about the Big Bang and concepts like that. And I wanted to kind of explore that in the story without necessarily being pro or con as to religion itself. Well, right. So in the story, humanity has passed through a period where there was pretty much no religion, it sounds like. And then these people called Quantists come about, which is a sort of new sort of scientific-y religion. Um, mm -hmm. the, the person says, we don't believe in a personal deity, but in a unifying theory of reality rooted in quantum phenomena beyond our ability to understand something we call the creative force. Yeah, that's me making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's a, um, uh, kind of a blend of what I was talking about. I, I could see, I see things moving in that direction right now. When you, when you get to these, um, really profound ideas in physics that you don't really understand, it, it reaches a point where it's, it becomes almost indistinguishable from religious concepts. So I thought that that would be an interesting direction to head to in the future. So when you're talking about, like you mentioned earlier, creatures made out of dark energy. Is there, is that just, are you just making that up because it sounds cool? Or is there any, I don't know, have you read any books where people are seriously proposing ideas like that? Um, well, I've certainly, like I said, read a lot of, seen a lot of science shows that talk about dark matter and, and, and um, uh, it's something we don't understand, we don't understand. So uh, it's rife for speculation. So um, I thought, hey, let's, let's create some dark matter uh, beings and stick them in a story. Well, because I guess that's an idea that is mentioned in one of the stories is that the sort of matter that we're made out of is actually the minority of matter in the universe. So, mm -hmm. you know, aliens might think of us as uh, being made out of exotic matter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I was just curious about this. So in missionary, actually in that same story, missionaries, there's a Dr. Michael Byers. And then in Dear Annabelle's, there's a Dr. Gregory Byers, same spelling. And I was just curious if there's any <laughs> connection there. They're, they're cousins. No, uh, <laughs> they, the, it's, it's weird that you mentioned that. I, I, um, I didn't realize I put the name in both stories, but 
I did know a, a Michael Byers uh, when I was growing up in uh, high school. So I, I often will stick in familiar names into stories. I mean, the characters have nothing to do with the actual people, but I like to borrow names all the time. Uh, I, I mean, I heard you say that um, uh, longing for uh, Longa Lana was sort of like um, Lana Lang from Superman was kind of... Inspired. Yeah, it was It was a, yeah, kind of a silly idea that uh, because, you know, when you're reading um, Superman stories as a teenager with Lana Lang and their kind of romantic interests, you know that he's going to wind up with Lois Lane. So I, I always felt bad for um, Lana knowing that she ultimately would be spurned by Clark Kent. So I thought that I wanted to use her name in, in my Worgen story since the story is about unrequited love. So I, I twisted her name around and came up with Langalana as the name of the uh, the planet. Uh, are there any sort of other um, names in there that people would recognize, like names of writers or science fiction um, references or anything? Well, I mean, I, I have um, Lois is the name of one of the characters in Longing for Langalana. Um, that's about it, though. I didn't want to... <laughs> Didn't want it to be obvious. I didn't want it to be obvious to the readers. Yeah. All yeah. right. So, um, so what are you working on now? Do you? Um, you're, I saw you. You wrote a story with Matt Kressel recently. Yes. Yes. Um, it's actually the second the second collaboration I've written that's been that's been published or is going to be published. First collaboration I did was with Eugene Myers, E.C. Myers, um, that was published in Space and Time magazine, and. Um, this one is, uh, that one is about, by the way, uh, uh, body hopping. It was a story that Eugene had written about, um, a society where people kind of are able to switch bodies, switch, move their personalities from one body to another. And it was a, it was a YA story and all the, what I thought the sordid stuff was outside the story pages. <laughs> and I told him, Eugene, you know, the real story here is what's going on, what you didn't talk about. Like, what is going on with this, all this body switching? And uh, so we sat down and we outlined a story about, um, really twist the story about sex clubs, where people go to these sex clubs to try out new bodies and have sex in them. And um, that was that was another really twisted story. I was really happy with that one. And it was hmm. I, I really enjoyed that I made Eugene write such a sick story. <laughs> hmm. uh, but, my, but my latest collaboration, yes, is with Matt Kressel. It's a, a story that's going to be appearing in Analog called uh, The Walk to Distant Suns. And it's basically a story about a, um, a station, a space station that has a wormhole that allows us to uh, travel to a, a, a new Earth that's being um, colonized. And, and basically the rich and the powerful get to go through and, and people who don't have enough money, uh, don't have the opportunity, can't you know, have to wait in line and they can't get through to the new earth. And it's told from the perspective of somebody who works in the station. She's been saving money her whole life to get her and her family through to, to new earth. And, um, at the last minute prices are raised, so she can't afford to do it. And she needs to get her parents across because one of them is, is dying and they have better medical treatments on new earth. So it's about, you know, the, the lengths to which she will go to, save her family and, and get them get them to new earth so i'm really happy with that one so do you guys like alternate scenes or does one person write a draft and then the other person rewrites it or how does that work the way it worked was we sat down in a coffee shop uh came up with the central idea of the wormhole and somebody who's trying to get across and then um we 
mapped out the scenes one by one. It took us a few hours to go through and figure out what what, what the, the action was that we wanted to take place in the story. So we we had like um you know five or six scenes described in a couple sentences, and then Matt went first, wrote the first you know he wrote the first scene, sent it to me. You know I revised it and sent him back scene two. He revised scenes one and two, sent me back scene three. <laughs> and we just went back and forth, revising, sending back. And by the time we were finished, we both felt that we had written the whole thing ourselves. So that's a successful collaboration, I think. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I feared about collaborations is that people, you think it's going to be, you're going to have to do 50% as, as much work and actually each person does 100% of the work. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of other approaches where people will, uh, sometimes somebody will write the whole story and give it to the other person to revise, or um, sometimes they literally will only write half the story. But, but uh, this this is what works best for me. I, I did it in both stories that I collaborated on. Mm-hmm. And I think I saw I saw Matt say that this is the first time either of you have been in analog. Yeah, this is really exciting. You know, I, I, it's one of the markets I definitely was looking to crack. So exciting to be in it. Yeah, I can't wait to can't wait till it comes out. It's the sort of bastion of hard science fiction, if people don't don't know that. Exactly, yeah. Asimov's Analog and uh, FNSF are the core three. Yeah. All right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. So just do you have any other any other projects you wanted to mention or any final thoughts or anything? Um, not really. I mean, I'm always juggling uh, a handful of stories. So um, looking forward to – I tend to incubate my stories. You know, like I'll write a first draft and then sit on it for a while go back and revise it. <laughs> over and over again before it's ready to see the world. So I have about three three or four stories that are just about ready to go out into the world. So um, hope to get those out soon so you'll be seeing, hopefully seeing them soon. And hopefully we'll be seeing that novel, right? It's called The Love War? The Love War, yeah, yes. Yeah. So like I said, it's, sitting, it's been sitting with a publisher for a while, but I, just coincidentally I received an email today saying that they were going to get back to me by the end of this month. So I should have an answer then, and um, we'll see. All right. Well, it sounds great. And I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Mercurio D. Rivera. And again, his book is called Across the Event Horizon. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mercurio D. Rivera for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Ignacio, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.